Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 90. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Alex Balfour of Balfour Capital. Please note this podcast was recorded on the 16th of February. Again, this is before the market volatility. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. Well, Alex, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, um, I have known Tim Price for, gosh, how long have we known each other, Tim? A bit over I, 20 years now. Uh, off and on. I think I think we started, I, 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 we developed our relationship, I think, when we were working together at a, a private bank called UBP, and that was in 2006. But we may well have been in contact before that. Indeed, indeed. Um, so I've been a, a fund manager, essentially, for 30 years, uh, albeit with... <laughs> you know, distribution straight marketing hat at various times as well. Um, I started life at Bering Asset Management, uh, which, I mean, it's extraordinary to think that the Bering's debacle of early yes. 95. That, Nick you know, Leeson. Yeah, exactly, the, the whole Leeson thing. But Bering's back in 1989 was the largest international fund manager in the world. Um, really? Because we had wow. a big presence in Asia. And then what they had done is they had um, developed a very strong presence in the States for, for clients. So we had big, huge clients like sort of Ford and GM and so on. And um, there were very few U.S. managers who were what they like to call international, which, of course, means non-U.S. Uh, and, you know, Bearings were just very good at putting an offering that was very well calibrated towards these U.S. clients. So when they suddenly started to increase their allocation to non-U.S., we were kind of there already and waiting. So it was a very interesting uh, time to be there. Unfortunately, uh, yours truly decided to go for the probably the most, um, you know, the, the market with the greatest prospects, i.e. Japan. So I watched the Nikkei go from 39,000. And then by the end of it, I saw it go down to six. Um, so I trained uh, under a fellow who's quite well known called Crispin Odi, who was the most inspiring person I think I've ever met. Um, super clever, uh, but also very flexible of mind, always interested in how you saw things. Uh, and so I, I remember one of my first projects was um, to try and help him find evidence uh, that food prices were going to collapse in Europe. So I was packed off to um, you know, various offices of, of the EU. Can I just ask on that? What, why were you specifically looking for food prices to collapse as a, uh, as a starting point? he had a sort of global view of food prices basically starting to come down because of improvements in technology. Remember, there were, you know, there were developments in GM and so on. Yes. And of course, European food prices were always and still are well above the world price. And I think he also felt that um, this was before the fall of the Berlin Wall, but that there was a push towards, you know, starting to reduce the CAP. I think he felt politically, you know, it was absorbing 40% of the budget. And he just thought once that goes, then we get closer to world prices. And of course, I think with retrospect, he probably didn't quite understand how firmly entrenched the CAP was. So that was quite nice for me to be able to go and say, look, I, I don't think this is going to happen because of this, this and this. And then my boss, who's a lovely, lovely man called James Williams, um, was incredibly inspired and said to me, before you go out to Tokyo, I want you to ha experience kind of the opposite. 
So he sent me off to, um, we had a colleague called Mark Latham, who's based in Boston, and to keep it cheap, uh, you know, I had to stay in his house with his family and stuff. But it was very interesting. And one of the first things we did was to get on a plane and go off to Austin, Texas. <laughs> you know, I felt I was going from London to then, you know, I thought in America, New York, our, our office was in Boston, which is much, much more sleepy. And the next thing was this tiny place, well, by US standards, in, in Texas. And, you know, we've lined up these companies, and of course, they don't mean anything to me. And then our first meeting, which was late morning, um, we were in this tiny little windowless office. I mean, it was absolutely minute, and we could hear each other breathe. And we were next to a sort of fairly stocky chap with round black glasses. And he was telling us all about how technology was going to take over the world. And Bering's thing at the time was, you know, finance and whatever, but certainly not technology. And he was promoting his company, which made customized PCs. And I thought, you know, this is nuts. We all know that PCs are commodities. That was that was that, that was Michael Dell, was it? Bingo. <laughs> no way. Yes, yes. It, it was just extraordinary. And and you know, this guy Mark Latham, uh, who's now got his own independent consultancy. I mean. He was even more brilliant, but less disciplined. So I'm not sure he was ever really a, um, you know, a money maker in, in himself. But my God, he understood companies, and he understood industries, and and it was quite interesting because he was quite different um, from Barry. He wasn't your typical sort of you know public school guy. He he's from um, the northeast, and basically taught himself almost everything. I mean, he he's a proper intellectual, just a very very clever and and delightful man. And um, he was banging on with his Geordie accent about technology. And you could just see these main board directors sort of glazing over. Um, and although Bering's had some great people, there were some who were probably less brilliant. And Mark was going on and on saying, look, it's all about technology. So he was going around for the portfolios, I might add, not for himself, <laughs> buying Yahoo, <laughs> Google, you know, 1988, 99, wow. sorry, 89, 90. Yeah. So he had this incredible foresight. So, so that's how I trained. And then I got to Tokyo and, you know, I still knew nothing about nothing. But Crispin had taught me to look at return on capital employed. And, you know, there was always the mantra that things had to be worth more um, than, than the cost of your capital. And Governor Miano uh, of the Bank of Japan that just put interest rates up to 6% to kill the bubble. And then I start, you know. Sorry, sorry, but that, that does rather date this, <laughs> does rather date this anecdote, the idea that interest rates in Japan could be at 6% as opposed to nothing or less than nothing. I mean, it it is utterly extraordinary. But, you know, those times were so bonkers. And, you know, people like to say, well, you know, New York, London, 2008. But I mean, in Tokyo, there were some real excesses. I'll never forget being uh, invited to dinner by by a broker. Um, and you know, I'm not into broker dinners, and I I can't stand people. I'm very Scottish like that. Don't like people spending money just for the sake of it. And they had created this new restaurant, uh, which was supposed to be the most expensive in Tokyo. And you know, when real estate was at such a premium, I mean. You know, well, we all know that famous statistic, the Imperial Palace was worth more than uh, the whole of California. Um, and you got to this restaurant and it was subterranean, which, again, was preposterous. But <laughs> something like 80 percent of the restaurant was a giant staircase. And then at the bottom of this giant staircase were four tables. <laughs> so so that was, um, you know, that was the sort of excess of Japan. So, yes, six percent was to kind of kill that culture. 
And then, you know, I start pouring over these balance sheets and then, you know, all the famous brand names, Sony, Matsushita, et cetera, et cetera. The return on capital was basically, well, when it wasn't negative, it went varied from sort of 0.2 to 1.2. <laughs> and your cost of capital was the 6% plus whatever alpha you wanted to add on, you know, 8%, mm. 9%. Um, so it was quite tricky for me because, you know, having been trained, I suddenly thought, gosh, you know, <laughs> no company's worth investing here. Um, and so what we ended up doing, I mean, those were the days, you know, prior to, to being able to short. And so the game was, you go to the client, we've done really well. Um, you know, we lost 15%, but the index is down 22 <laughs> Yes. Do you think your experience, your your subsequent experience, has been informed by having lived through the the Japan experience? Because the the, the reason the reason I ask is because one of the things I continue to cite. I mean, I'm a great user of cheesy quotes and anecdotes, but the one I continually cite is the the fund manager I met back in around 2000, who said that he was a Japanese equity manager, and he said Japan was the dress rehearsal, the rest of the world will be the main event. And at the time, that seemed an outlandish statement, and now it seems extremely prescient. Well, I certainly didn't see that. I remember our big cheese, he was a fellow called John Bolsover, um, who, who really had an extraordinary take on markets. He came over to my desk just before I left for Tokyo, and he said, you do realise, don't you, that your market's going to drop 95%. <laughs> and I looked at him thinking, gosh, he hasn't understood anything about mm. Japan. Because in those days, it was all about Japan exceptionalism. Um, yeah, the Japan that will take over the world. Exactly. You know, and, and, and all Californians were eating sushi and learning to speak Japanese and all that sort of rubbish, um, which, by the way, you know, everyone was sort of doing about China until a, a few years ago. Um, but no, but to your question, which is possibly my favorite question, because we all have our identity so invested in you know, how we approach the world and so on. And, I mean, this is what I find fascinating about the Brexit arguments is we're so conditioned by our experiences. So you're never going to change that in someone. And I was profoundly marked by this in in, in two ways. One that um, I was just used to seeing things going down and down and down and down. And where you really notice that is that when you come back to the normal market, almost everyone around you is clearly used to absolutely the opposite, you know, which is that things just grind up and grind up. Um, and, and that gives you some weakness, I think, inherent weakness, because, um, you know, with Trump coming, I've been fighting the tape a bit, because you're cynical about, about bull markets. Mm. But I think the, the bit that, well, apart from being able to surf the shorts, which I'll talk about in a minute, which is, I think, a great thing when you get into a bear market. But the other thing that I ex-Japan hands have in a way that most other people don't, is I think that those who've not experienced bear markets think that it's a parallel universe. And I, I, I'm afraid I speak in stupid metaphors, but it's a bit like comparing hang gliding with um, diving. And, and you, you know, one is the corollary of the other in a way, but actually diving is completely different to hang gliding. And I think going long, going short is the same. And one lesson I learned really the hard way, I think my, you know, they always say to be a good investor, you have to have had challenges, setbacks, failures. <laughs> My biggest failure in my early career was, I mean, we had a very good backup system. So I went off on my annual leave. Exceptionally, I took three weeks off. I handed the portfolio to my colleague, who was very good. And I'd done very well with my unit trust because I'd had very high levels of cash. In those days, you couldn't have more than 25%, and I was at 20%. 
And I mean, you know, it is extraordinary to think that in the summer of 1992, Japan was just realizing how profound this change was. And the Nikkei was down at 14,000 when I got on the plane. And when I got back to Tokyo three weeks later, the Nikkei was at 23,000, almost. So I went from top decile, I think, to the bottom of the fourth quartile in three weeks. Because, you know, when you have a, a bear market snapback, as it were, of 50%, retracement of 50%, and you're that heavily in cash, and most other people are, you know, 5% max, uh, you get killed. So, again, another thing. And, and, you know, so when, I mean, I didn't, I didn't do that well in the March 2009 snapback because, you know, the, the timing was quite important. But at least you understand what's happening and you, you get that the bear market's over. I think the only final point I'd make is, um, you know, how this marked me. Uh, in March 2008, I opened, that's really when I started doing global macro. And my partner in crime is a, is a Hong Kong Chinese guy called Stephen Chan. Well, well, he, when, you say, when you say global macro, what, what, what exactly are you doing at the moment? Because you haven't actually said, you've just told yeah, us about so, your, so your history. We trade in four buckets, although one really hasn't come live yet. But we do equity indices, just the main ones, S&P, FTSE, CAC, DAX, Hang Seng, Nikkei. So this is uh, a private fund, is it? Yeah. 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 And then the six out of the seven DXY components. So we don't do the Kiwi, but we do everything else, you know, Aussie, Swiss, Sterling, Euro. Uh, and then a very select group of commodities, um, oil, gas, um, copper, gold, and then corn and coffee. Uh, I mean, originally we started doing less than that, but from March 08 to March 09, I mean, taking enormous amount of risks you'd never do with external money. And, you know, it wasn't sort of at risk in the normal sense. But, you know, we made five times our money because we were just surfing the, the, the shorts. And, you know, we could really feel it and we could just see the momentum. When you say surfing the shorts, in, does that mean you were going short and then buying back or you were buy, buying the, buying the, the rebound? Um, well, we were, we were doing both. Um, so, you know, when you'd had four or five days of down 7, 9, 8%, particularly in the autumn, Oh, eight. We were then thinking, mm, it's a bit oversold. And, and as I said, you know, you never do this with external money. We started buying back um, the shorts and then we'd go long and then it would fall another seven, eight percent. We'd buy a bit more. Um, so we were really swinging from the chandeliers. And I mean, it's a very odd one because, of course, you're conscious, you know, throughout that, that the world is gently falling apart. And it, it reminded me very much of Jesse Livermore, I mean, gosh, who am I to compare myself to him? But Jesse Livermore uh, in October 1929, taking his net worth from 10 million to 100 million in about four days, but then being asked to come into JP Morgan's office and told, look, you know, I know you want to make more money, but you've got to close your positions because people are watching you and, you know, we've got to change the sentiment of the market. And so, you know, we, we, we were so enjoying it because we were getting it right. But of course, you know, then suddenly Bear Stearns goes, and, you know, um, you wonder if, if, if the world's actually going to be around and whether your account is going to be um, valued. But I think certainly the, the bit I feel co comfortable with is, is, the, is the bearish side. And, you know, I, I don't think we're there yet. I think we've got the presidential cycle still to kick in. But I'm just wondering what's going to support all these asset prices, certainly possibly in the autumn or, or certainly next year. I was just going to say that was a question I... I wanted to ask about your your thoughts about where we are. Could this happen again? And would it be the same as before, worse than before? Or do you do you think we're we're gonna get 
you know, we're, we're not going to get such a particularly bad bear market that everyone's expecting? Well, I, I think the one thing I'm absolutely certain of, um, because I've seen it happen again and again and again. So one wonderful thing about turning 50 is you've suddenly got a few decades under your belt. Um, it won't happen in the same way as before. I, I think that that's highly unlikely. And although some of the banking systems around the world are, are quite unhealthy, um, certainly the main ones, the US particularly, have been very well recapitalized. So I'd be surprised, you know, it's, it's not going to be corporate loans and, and that sort of thing. Um, I have to say, I think the one thing that keeps me awake at night or that I'm very vigilant about, and I'm not terribly knowledgeable because I don't have the technical knowledge, but certainly in terms of the madness of crowds, the thing that has suddenly captured my attention is this overdependence on algorithmic trading. And when I talk to people, they quite often poo-poo my human input and they just say, look, why don't you just give up on that? hire a couple of physicists and then, um, you know, get them to create an algorithm. And I had someone in my office, uh, it's about a year ago now, and he was saying precisely this. And I, I realized that he had a portfolio of 15 systematic traders. And he was waxing lyrical about them and how, you know, the, the AI could adapt all the time. And then I said to him, um, well, how much of that data do you think is pre-1982? And it took him about a minute to register why it said 1982, i.e. peak of interest rates. Um, and then he confessed that he wasn't entirely sure. And he came back and he said it was over 95% of the data was pre-1982. So to me, these people are absolutely bonkers, you know, because we're not going to have falling interest rates forever and ever and ever. And I think that when when that begins to change a bit and and there's every reason to believe we're getting very close. Um, you know, then these algorithms completely fall apart. And I, I mean, I was very minded, Tim, you'll remember this. Um, our boss, who shall remain nameless at the institution we worked for, mm. um, I remember rang me up in a panic in August 2007 and just said, you know, we have a huge problem. I mean, the, the rumors were Goldman Sachs were going bust. It was when Statar blew up and mm. every single fund was down 10%. And it was very interesting because the only marker I made was this is one of our pre-shocks, as I call it. You know how with mm. earthquakes you get after tremors. And I think markets, I mean, you see it again and again. March 2000, people forget, was preceded by, it was certainly December 99 and I think October 99. There was a big downdraft and you often get these warnings. And it's so interesting that, I mean, of course, I didn't understand anything about US mortgages, but that August 2007, blow up of Statarb was a precursor to the 2008 um, you know, crash. Uh, so, so, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's very interesting to, to look at, you know, a number of different things that, that could spell trouble ahead. And that, that's the one I'm really looking out for. You mentioned earlier performance in the 90s relative to the, the market, so fund versus Nikkei. Why, and this is a genuine question, even though it might sound a bit crass, why do you think index relative or market relative investing ever became as popular as it's now become? The re the, in other words, the, the, the backdrop for my asking the question is, as far as I, I'm concerned, for any private client, the only benchmark that matters is an absolute return one. I, I totally agree with you. Um, I think, unfortunately, you know, human beings are creatures of habit. And when the index is more or less constantly going up. When you know when 1987 looks like a blip, 
And yeah. I remember it well. It just looks like a blip now. And, you know, provided interest rates continue to either fall or stay low, then basically every time you 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 have an issue, you just buy. I mean, it's very interesting. I, I met a couple of credit managers this week and they were both building up war chests for, you know, what would happen if we had a, a, a sell off. And, mm. you know, I didn't want to say anything, but in my mind, I was thinking, well, do you really think it's going to be like 2009? What if actually, you know, the bond markets go on strike and you get, mm. you know, a completely different environment? Like, let's say February 1994, when markets fell 10%, bond markets fell 10% in three or four days, I think it was. Um, you know, in those conditions, uh, things would look very different. So I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who've given up on active management mm. and, you know, who just think it should either be passive or, you know, you then play around the market a little bit, you know, whenever you get a setback. But, you know, to be fair to those people, there have been people like me who are always bearish, always sceptical. Mm. And we've been wrong again and again and again. And, you know, these people have, have been right. But it's a bit like the boy who cries wolf. But in, in the words of Grant Williams, though, hasn't is not the same as won't. So oh, couldn't know. agree more. Couldn't agree more. And I, funny enough, again, you know, there are these really interesting uh, milestones that you see, which at the time you either don't really think about or you don't realise quite how much they're telling you. And with hindsight, you do. So I think the, the lovely thing is you get more experience as an investor is to look at things a little bit more, not necessarily deeply, but try and make up the association. So, for example, you'll remember this, Tim, when... Um, George Osborne increased the minimum wage from whatever it was, six pounds something to nine pounds something um, in various steps. I was thinking, well, why is someone who is essentially fairly heartless? I, I, I don't think, I think most people would agree Osborne's probably not the most compassionate fellow. What, why did he do that? Um, you know, was it a political necess necessity? And then, of course, those of us who look at markets know that profits to GDP is absolutely at record levels and therefore labor to GDP you would expect would would sort of bottom out at some stage. I think he just foresaw that wage rates had to go up, um, that it was a sort of inevitability and he wanted to be ahead of the curve. Of course, what was very interesting about that decision was for someone who is essentially quite a strong remainer, what would have actually happened is our net arrivals from the EU would have gone from 300,000 to maybe 500,000, you know, with the, the minimum wage going up. But those those little markers are significant. And I'm convinced that, you know, everyone's focusing on the, you know, lack of staff at Sainsbury's, you know, it's all automated and all this. But I'm convinced that for, for various reasons, pull and push, but I think costs are going to start going up. And so, you know, you can't see exactly how or when, but I think the cost of capital has to go up. And, you know, when you look at the Swiss yield curve, I mean, it's so completely and utterly bonkers. You know, hello, Swiss bank. <laughs> you know, <laughs> here's, here's some dosh. I've got to pay you. You know, you're not giving me any interest. I've actually got to pay you to put it in your vault for me to be at risk. I mean, it's, it, I just can't see it continuing for, for a very long time. You've mentioned, um, you've mentioned Brexit. Many of our listeners will have bought a copy of Dominic Frisby's 17 million fuck-offs. Well, I'm in that uh, video. And I was just going to ask, how did how did you end up in that video? <laughs> it's a completely nutty story. And and the loveliest bit of it is that, you know, I have a, a teenager and a pre-teenager. And, you know, I don't feature very highly on their cool list. But it was my son who saw me in the video. I had, I had, well, I hadn't really thought about it. 
And it was very early a Saturday morning. He woke up at seven and he comes and shakes me awake. Daddy, daddy, you're on social media. Um, no, all that happened was I got to know Lucy uh, Harris a bit. Right. Who was an MEP, who, who I must say is absolutely delightful and charming. And she does everything with good grace. And she organized a Leavers of Britain drinks. And, you know, I'm not completely, you know, sort of Cyclops, uh, obsessive Brexiteer, but I just thought, let's go and have a look. Let, let's be a bit curious. And um, we're in the Barley Mo, which is this pub in Westminster. It was quite funny because I walked into the pub <laughs> and I looked around and I thought, these people don't really look like Brexiteers. <laughs> they look like your typical London media, um, you know, Guardian reading, very trendy glasses and all that sort of thing. Uh, until, of course, I realised the party was upstairs. Um, and then although the clientele upstairs was quite different, I was actually struck by how uh, mixed it was, backgrounds, sexes, um, whatever. Um, and there was a lovely atmosphere and people were buying each other drinks. And, um, you know, you didn't just see, you know, those wearing cords in one corner speaking to each other. It was a, it was a great mingling. Uh, and then suddenly Dominic Frisbee, who, of course, I knew from The Spectator, walks in. And he goes, oh, hi, hi. Um, you know, can I speak to everybody? Um, I'm doing this video. It's a song. And, um, you know, can you give us your names just in case you don't want to be in the video and whatever? And I didn't even pay attention. And then he gave us a bit of a sing, sing along. And, you know, we were all getting into the flow. And of course, the beers had, <laughs> had flowed. Yeah. And I think we all, you know, it, 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 it sort of seemed to capture the zeitgeist. Yeah. And in that typical British way, you know, it's not snarling or offensive. It's just, look, we're, we're, we're tired of being bullied. Yeah. <laughs> and it was such an English way of sort of putting up your beer and saying, 17 million, fuck off. Um, and I happened to be, because I'd come straight from work. I was the only uh, fellow in a suit, I think, or more or less. So it felt. And then I had my most, I mean, it's not really me. Um, I'm not into flash things. But this happened to have a crimson lining in it, you know, sort of, estate agent type suit <laughs> <laughs> and i noticed in the clip i mean it's it's a second and a half so yeah. it's, it's really ridiculous but i saw the 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 lining kind of flashing <laughs> this red lining not quite the image that i would want to cultivate but um that was that and and, and frisbee is a terrific guy i think oh he is, he is he's original and he's witty and and nice to see someone with that sort of thoughtfulness and whatever on our side of the argument. The thing I like about, I mean, there are many things I like about Dominic, but the, one of the things I most like is the fact that in, in, in investment terms and financial terms, he's, he's an autodidact. He's completely self-taught. So he, 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 my understanding is that basically whenever it was in the mid uh, noughties, he, he basically fired his IFA and said, I can do a better job myself, and then proceeded to write books about gold, Bitcoin, and you know, and the rest. Well, I I typically find those people are, 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 are the best. I mean, I was telling you about that guy, Mark Latham. I don't know much. I think he went to quite a good university, but I, I dare say his secondary schooling was probably not, not brilliant. But he just shone, you know, from, from word go. And funny enough, I think Michael Gove is fairly similar, very, very self-taught. I mean, I knew him at, at university and he was always very impressive. In terms of looking around the world at places that are possibly overvalued and some that might be undervalued, where, where, where do you think you would be most concerned and where are you looking for an opportunity to perhaps buy? Um, well, I, I think the... <laughs> not not to keep on topic as it were, but I, I do think the, the bit of the world 
um, that doesn't even realise it's got a problem is 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 Europe, um, and I think particularly France. Uh, I grew up in France. Uh, I was there from the age of seven to seventeen, and funny enough, we had some very very good French friends over for dinner last night, and we were discussing a number of things. And they're of course very anti-Brexit. Charmingly though, not at all the censorious. You're going to do really badly, but we in Europe are going to suffer from not having the UK. I find this slightly, slightly confusing to the extent that, I mean, the French never really wanted us in in the first place. So why they didn't want us to leave seems perverse to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that France has played a blinder in the EU. I mean, it's amazing. They latched on to German guilt in 1957. Yeah. And I think that... Uh, Germany has slowly but surely been asserting itself. And of course, it's it's the big giant in the room. It's 80 million rather than our combined 65 each. And I think the French probably always, they'd either side with the Germans or they'd side with the British. So the British, I think, were very useful, particularly on things like defence, security, because then you could counterweight the Germans. And I think they're, they're concerned about this. But, but the reason, the reason I mean, coming back, trying to focus on, on, on your question, uh, I think that, um, well, to me anyway, and, and I'm not sure if this is politic, but to me, the idea that you create a monetary union without a fiscal union, and most importantly, without fiscal transfers, um, to me is, is the most extraordinary economic illiteracy. Mm. And I'm afraid, you know, you're, I, I can only see two possibilities, either what I would call a political denouement, um, and that could ultimately be, you know, we're, we're not that far from getting fascism in, in bits of Europe already, or it's a, a sort of blow up of, of, you know, the banking system, etc. I, I think it's inevitable that one of those two happen. And a lot of French people I know, and obviously I've got family there and so on, but some of them just don't even realise that there's there's a problem. It's a huge, bl- it's a huge blind spot, isn't it? Completely haven't, blind. Haven't, haven't they noticed the youth unemployment and the yellow gilets jaunes and, and, uh, and, and, you know the transfer of of sort of great minds out of France to you know the hubs in 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 London setting up you know tech companies etc. The, there are a few who do like Charles Garve and uh, there's a fellow called Asolino who's very impressive. But you know the typical reaction um, to of most French people to to the youth unemployment is you know boff <laughs> Gallic shrug of the shoulders. <laughs> and I think they just think I mean it's been going on for so long. Uh, I think they think that it will just continue. And I think the thing that, you know, particularly those sort of, I call them city break Brits, i.e. those, you know, who've had a marvellous, marvellous holiday in wherever it is, Montpellier or somewhere like that. I think what they don't understand is that the only reason that the French themselves are not completely shocked by, say, policemen beating up firemen, you know, has happened Mm. a few weeks ago. Um, I mean, I remember so vividly as a child, moving from England to France when I was seven, and then first coming across this, it's a sort of elite police, well, I say elite, half of them are criminal, Um, they've got criminal records, but the CRS. Mm. Um, And I mean, you know, their uniforms and their whole sort of posturing is super aggressive. What is the CRS? Um, Just sorry, I I don't know what that is. Uh, corps de République, républicain, something, something. I can't remember exactly. Oh, and they're just police, are they? Or... Well, they're sort of... <laughs> like special patrol. And if we've oh, got any French oh, listeners, right. they'll kill me. But, you know, in Iran has its Republican guards. <laughs> and I the French see. have right. the CRS. You know, they're right, police. And they're, they're trained oh. specially to deal. And they're the ones who, you know, you see these clips of them beating up 
you know, a disabled person on crutches mm. or, um, you know, uh, letting off pepper spray in someone's face, you know, who was clearly not attacking. And, and they're pretty ruthless. Um, but it's very interesting. I mean, I feel I'm digressing a bit, but this friend who came yesterday, who's very pucker French and went to public school in England so and, and university in the States. So he's a really intelligent man of the world. But it's fascinating, this discussion uh, about, you know, the UK leaving being very negative, etc. But we then started to debate because my number one point uh, about about Brexit has always been that you know Westminster is such an extraordinary system. You know it's evolved so gradually over so long, and it's got so many checks and balances. Um, if that's being encroached um, by things like QMB and so on, it's something that I think most British people deep down would not want to part with. And so I was trying to get to the bottom because, you know, even though I went to school there and, you know, I've got family and so on, I never really got to the bottom of how the political system works. And his interpretation was so interesting. He said, look, since the Fifth Republic, which is de Gaulle in the, in the 60s creation, um, the president has enormous great powers. He's head of state. He's obviously head of the executive. And then with Macron, everybody forgets. But, you know, he creates a new party and then with three, within three years, he controls two thirds of the National Assembly and the Senate, um, which, you know, could never happen in Britain because of fast past the post and other checks and balances. So, you know, you've got this, I mean, he's got near dictatorial powers, you know, the parliament can't do much. And so I said, so what are the checks and the balances? And he said, the mob. <laughs> and you realise that's basically how it works. You know, 1968, de Gaulle, you know, is out of sync with the population 17 1789 and 1789 you know and it's it's a it's a long it's a long thing so um you know the 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 european problem i think expresses itself either from what you're saying youth unemployment and i hate to say it but you know my heart goes out to french people who are not white and and you know, i'm a bit out of date but in the 80s they were treated i mean you saw bad things in england but I mean, in France, it, it was just unspeakable what I what I saw in in the mid nineteen eighties, um, and I think that if you're non-white French youth, unemployment is closer to the fifty percent. And I remember a, a, a thing that marked me profoundly. I was in Pret a Manger, minding my own business, buying a sandwich, and I was just in a shirt and tie. <laughs> so these two young kids come up to me, thinking I'm the manager. <laughs> really flattering. Um, <laughs> and I could hear the French accent. So I started chatting to them. And um, I said, Oh, you know, where are you from? Marseille. Um, so is it difficult to get a job? Um, and they said, Oh, it's impossible. And then it was a boy and a girl, I think they were siblings. And he said, um, my, my name is Mohammed. So unless I change my first name, I haven't got a chance in hell of getting interviews. And then they'd only been in England 24 hours, so they probably had rose-tinted spectacles and so on. But I said, so do, why do you think it's going to be different here? And they said, um, well, uh, you know, first of all, you don't have the same levels of unemployment. Yours are about half. Of course, I completely agreed with that. But then they said, um, you know, we've been here for 24 hours. And in the B&B last night, we switched on the telly. And then we noticed that the newsreaders on BBC News were not all white. And then we watched EastEnders <laughs> and, you know, and they said it was an Indian family and there was a, a black family and, and you really saw a much bigger diversity. And then, of course, I think it was about a month later, we won the right to the 2012 Olympics. So this would have been June 2005. 
And I, I'll never forget, and, and, you know, I react to this a bit. Um, the French called our bid video, démodé, which means, you know, out of fashion, old fashioned, whatever. And they've been quite rude. And, of course, they had this very, very funky film that showed five jets flying through the Eiffel Tower and, you know, that was the five colours of the Olympics. And it was sort of super slick. And I remember thinking, gosh, you know, this presentation could be quite good. And then, of course, after showing both films, our film was, it was rather charming. It was the story of a child in China, a child in Mexico, all aspiring to being Olympic athletes. And then you got the presentations. And the French one was these five white middle-aged men, all in grey suits. I mean, it says it all. <laughs> the symbolism was <laughs> just incredible. Um, and they were each as boring as each other. And, and what made me laugh as a Brit was we'd so got, gone over the top. We had, I don't know how many people we had. We had about 40 or 50. Beckham was there. I think Prince William was there. Um, there were about three or four wheelchairs that, I always forget his name, the, the guy with dreadlocks in, in the wheelchair. Yes, he's done a I lot. know who you mean. Yeah. He's charming, and he was on it. And then you had children, and, you know, it was sort of a London thing. So there were probably fewer white people than, than non-white. And I remember just feeling enormously proud uh, of, of, of our nation that's embraced multiculturalism in a completely different way because we don't have the, va the values of the republic which is, you know, very Cartesian, very, you know, it's a, it's a sort of filter. And, and, and if, you, if, you're, if you deviate from that, you're not part of the Republic. Whereas I think we have a, a tendency to, to sort of adapt to how things evolve. Um, but coming back, so I think, I think I, I, there will be a summer when the French youth just finally implode. But I, I also think that, you know, it's, it's Southern Europe. Um, that, and France is, I mean, it's so funny, my economics teacher, at school who was actually French because it was international. We had we had the French side and then the international side. She was on the French side and she's terribly funny. And I mean, French humour can be marvellous. And she just said, we in France were totally screwed. <laughs> we were wide-eyed. And there were probably only about, I don't know, 10 French children in the class. And um, we were waiting for this explanation. She said, well, we, we kind of fall between two stools. We pretend that we're Northern, but we're basically Southern. And I mean, so well put because it's, it's true. So, so France will have some of the problems, but not all of Southern Europe. But I think, you know, Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece. Um, and, and, you know, the, the explanation I always give to non-market people when they sort of say, you know, why are you so against the euro? Why, why do you think it's financially illiterate? Why are you being so offensive? And I always give them the, 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 the parable of Volkswagen Fiat, which is in the good old days, the, um, the lira would devalue by 5% against the um the deutschmark so yes fiats were never quite the same quality they weren't as reliable blah 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 but you know they were always designed with flair and style and they were fun and most importantly they were cheaper the second you have a common currency you're competing with the germans on their own terms and you know i mean i'm a bit naughty with french people i basically say listen you, you can choose. You either get rid of the euro and you have the franc, or you stop making cars and you focus on handbags and, and women's shoes. And of course, you know, that always gets their goat. But um, I think it's a truth. I, I just don't see how Renault can compare with um, Volkswagen on price. Do you think Do you think 2020 could be the year in which things really start to hit the skids as far as the eurozone is concerned? 
both in terms potentially of both the currency and also the economy? Do you know, I mean, as, as we all know, timing is absolutely everything. Um, and I'm just wondering whether, you know, we've all been saying, OK, well, what happens? Greece, you know, defaults or we get Italy another, or, or Italy, exactly. Mm. I'm just wondering whether maybe we're looking in the wrong place. Um, because if if the US cycle turns over, and, you know, the, the Trump cycle having been stretched and stretched, um, you know, you could easily see a situation where, you know, when his re-election is in the bag, and I, I just assume he will be re-elected, um, markets suddenly just think, oh, Christ, what have we got to look forward to now, kind of thing. Um, and I think that, I mean, you can see it with the euro. You know, I got sucked in a bit a few months ago. It looked as though it was sort of bottoming out a bit. So I put on a long for a little while and then eventually got clicked out. And now you just think, yeah, no, it's, it, it's, it's coming off. And the reason is very simple. You know, if you were an international investor, let's just say you're from Thailand or something like that, where do you want to invest? I mean, I would still say the dollar, the dollar, the dollar. Mm. Um, but then if you're not the dollar, definitely the yen, because, you know, the, the Bank of Japan is still uh, so sort of, well, it's conservative, you know. And um, actually, there's a, an interesting theory I, I'd like to mention a bit later. Um, but you know, sterling, I mean, gosh, I think it's going to go to 105 against the, the dollar, the, the, the old um, 1985 January low, simply because I think, uh, uh, you know, we're going to have a huge, great big fight and it's going to look as though it's no deal until suddenly something gets cobbled together. Um, but, you know, over the medium to long term, sterling looks incredibly cheap. So, so, so what's the currency you don't particularly like? Euro. Absolutely. Top of my list is the euro. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, because I'll probably forget my theory. And, you know, as always, I, I often think I've discovered America until I realise you know, 12 people have written about this. But I've always had a theory about central banks um, because you, you you have two camps, essentially. You have the old uh, the, the, the old Bundesbank, um, which is now a sort of proxy for the euro, although it has changed a bit. And then Japan on the one side. And then you have the Anglo-Saxons on the other. And they are so utterly different and I think rarely in tune. And for me, it's very simple because the the first half of last century was experienced in completely opposite ways. So in Germany and in Japan, they both had massive hyperinflation. And, you know, when people ask for examples or whatever, I mean, I told someone the other day, they had no idea that uh, in 1924, early 1924, to buy a, a meal in a restaurant in Germany, uh, you essentially, well, you got into the restaurant, there were no printed menus uh, because there was a chalkboard where you had the prices. And by the time you finished lunch, the prices had doubled. So there was a clerk who was updating the prices every five minutes. I mean, it's just shocking. And you needed basically a wheelbarrow mm. of, of, of banknotes. And Japan had a very similar um, issue with with hyperinflation. And it's amazing how this is anchored into the psyche of those nations, because Japan, since then, it's all about no hyperinflation, no hyperinflation. Meanwhile, the US, and to a lesser degree, the Anglo-Saxons, you know, that sort of, you imagine, you know, Kansas with the sort of dust bowls and mm. you know, unemployment. And, you know, then obviously they had the New Deal and so on. So, you know, I think the Anglo-Saxons are absolutely petrified of deflation. Um, and, and that's what's going to be very interesting, because you've now got some bigger players in the mix like China, who frankly sort of have neither, because, you know, they were they were very disjointed before the Second World War. Um, and now you've got this, um, 
you know, this, this unelected, uh, I mean, they're essentially bureaucrats um, and, and you're never quite sure how, how they're going to react. The only thing I would say is, is um, they will always uh, towards stimulation ultimately, but it's, it's different to the, to the Anglo-Saxon way. It sounds a little bit like you're just alluding to a metaphor of sort of generals fighting the last war. And so you are know, kind of like whatever's going to happen is not going to be, you know, you know, you, you get, you get, the opposite of what you're fearing or what you're trying to work against? Um, I'm not sure because patterns do repeat themselves. Um, it's just where, where, where I get to on, on this is, is that, you know, so that in as much as we have a macro thesis, we don't really have a macro thesis, but in as much as we do have one, it would consist of the following uh, lines, that there's too much debt in the world, it can never possibly be repaid back, so it will be defaulted on either explicitly or implicitly through inflation. And either way, it, it just makes bonds uninvestable as an asset class. Um, and so the the question for us is is really uh, what 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 do we have to protect against during the period of this 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 however long this reckoning takes? Yeah, I think I I agree with with quite a lot of that. Um, you know, when you said default, I was thinking, oh no, I don't quite. And then you said through inflation, which of course yeah. it's exactly right. Um, talking about bonds, so I I told you about the three out of the four things we trade. The fourth, which we don't trade that often, but. Uh, is uh, bond futures, sovereign bond futures. And we only do the 10-year because I'm not a credit guy and yeah. I can't play up and down the yield curve. I'm just not good enough for that. But um, one of the main reasons um, that we have this as a panoply, there's a very, very interesting man who sadly died a few years ago, but he was called Mr. Ishii. And he was the scion of the Tachibana family. Tachibana is uh, a private Japanese stockbroker owned by the family. And he made a name for himself uh, notoriously in 1989. Um, he was sort of already getting on. And he had a lead article in the on the front page of the Nikkei. <laughs> and this must have been, I don't know, September 1989. And he basically wrote, sell everything. <laughs> mm. And then his article was, you know, real estate, stock markets, blah, 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 blah. And this was well before Miano was talking about, um, you know, the massive tightening I referred to earlier, because that was December 1989. Um, so it was really prescient. And one of his comments, I mean, it's now five, six years ago, but he said, shorting the JGB will be the, the short of the 21st century. Mm. And I'm convinced he's right, and I think that's true of other 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 bond markets. Now, the, the you know, to your point, what what's the catalyst? And um, you know, every time I try and engage with people about costs rising, so cost of labour, I get shot down. You know, oh, go to Sainsbury's and see how few people are actually working. You know, the technological and people love technology, and I dare say they're probably right. And and when I'm questioning myself, I always think, well, you know, what if AI? transformed things and just made everything so much cheaper you know yeah but 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 what just to that point and we'll, we'll hold that but in terms of making what cheaper though i mean ai is not as smart as people really think it's just it's a machine learning tool that works in reverse you give it the answer and it works out um once you've given it the answer, it, it works out what you're trying to achieve. So, for example, satellite images, you can say, I want to identify cars against trees or something, and you give it the answer and it works it out. But I, I, I think detecting your kind of scepticism 
for it is well-founded because expecting AI to keep prices low just because it's technology is, I think, misplaced. Nobody really understands, people who talk about AI don't really understand it. It's just this, it's this phrase that people used to throw around about the internet a very long time ago, not really knowing what it was, but saying, you know, in that case, it was a, a game changer. But I can't see what AI is going to do to keep prices low. I, I don't disagree with you. And I would tend to be on that side of the argument. Um, the only thing I would say, though, is if someone had told me 10 years ago, um, two things. One, that you know I could go into a Sainsbury's local and there'd literally be two people. Um, I wouldn't have believed them. Uh, probably, actually, because I wouldn't have thought they would trust people to scan their things properly. Um, but the other one that is completely surprised me is, you know, I'm 53. I'm old enough to remember when, not necessarily in Europe or the States, but in places like India, if you went on an aeroplane, um, when you checked in, they would get a sticker that said, you know, 27A, and then they would plonk it on your, um, you know, that's how the seats were allocated. And, you know, when you look at a, a sort of British Airways website now, which is probably not the most advanced, but, you know, not only is all that done automatically, and then you get bombarded with offers to upgrade your ticket, and then, you know, you can buy this, and then what about a rent car, and so on. And you can see that that's completely transformed the PNL of those companies. So all, all I'm really saying is I don't want to be too dogmatic about the fact that, um, you know, we're, the, the, the technology has ceased to sort of give us give us productivity improvements. Um but I think the, the one I'm really looking at, I was so completely and utterly wrong, I think, on oil. I, I was telling everybody I think oil is going to go to 10 bucks um, just because, you know, we're, we're getting more and more efficient with, with energy, et cetera. And then, of course, what I hadn't appreciated uh, is the supply side. And I don't know enough, really, but I think that there is a sense that with a lot of commodities, we're living on borrowed time. I mean, if you take, for example, the softs, you know, coffee, um, plants, you know, they're, they're, they're getting older and older. And, you know, you have a big freeze and conditions are very, very ripe for an increase in prices. And so intuitively, if you try and look back, what, what could the next period look a bit like? I keep on coming back to the 1970s. And, you know, as Brits, we all know that was probably the least glorious decade of our entire mm. island history. Mm. And, uh, I, I dare say we're in a better place now, but but that's, I think, and you know, and of course, the more people protest, say, no, 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 there's no way, you know, interest rates are going to remain low forever, and you know, well, that's got to be bollocks. That's that can't be right. That just cannot be right. It's not possible for no. it to be. But I mean, a long period, yes, but not not forever. It will change. Yes, yes. But the only thing I would say is, I'll never forget when I knew square root of nothing. I think it was 1992. My broker rings me and he says, "Oh, Alex, Alex, look." I think you should buy. I think you should um, short short the JGBs. And I said, well, wh why would you? Why would you say that? And he said, well, because <laughs> the, the the yield's gone down from six to four. <laughs> you know, and then we saw it come down to basis points, and it's just gone on and on and on and on. So, um, I mean, who knows? I mean, if, if again, if someone had said to me ten years ago, you know, bond yields would be lower than they are today, I, I would have thought they were mad. Changing gear just a little, I was watching one thing that we discussed, we've talked about a fair bit uh, on the podcast is uh, the series, the miniseries uh, Chernobyl, which I'm increasingly minded to think is the best thing I've seen um, of the last few years uh, on, on you know, television. And um, so I was watching it again uh, during the week and it, it, I just had the thought, is there a possibility that um, the coronavirus 
could end up doing for China what Chernobyl did for the so arguably did for the Soviet Union, namely bring the party to an end. Just dis- just dis- discuss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I first heard that theory, I think, yesterday. Um, and I haven't really given it enough thought. China's reaction, um, and, you know, I, I lived in Hong Kong for eight years, so I, I understand how they do things. I mean, what's bizarre is there's been a complete dislocation or, or a lack of correlation between how they deal with all of this stuff. And they've really been hot on it since SARS. Um, but but their lack of regulation of these wet markets. I, I had a, a wet market just down the hill from where I was, and occasionally I'd go in. And, you know, the hygiene standards, and this is Hong Kong where... You know, what's, a, what's a wet market? Sorry, I've not heard <laughs> well, that before. Um, I suspect it's, it's maybe sort of for traditional hygiene reasons. The, uh, the Chinese distinguish between what they'd call a dry market, which would be vegetables, fruit, things that don't need washing down. And then a wet market is fish, meat, um, you know, anything where, you know, at five, five o'clock or whenever they shut down, you, you get the hoses out and you, you clean everything. So, so they're very distinct. Um, and in Hong Kong, for example, the wet markets always tend to be in proper buildings that have walls, whereas the, the dry markets can be street stalls, um, like, a bit like a, a market you'd get in England, you know, in North End Road or something like that. Um, and so the wet markets have always got, and you know, meat hygiene is nothing like the UK. Um, you know, you've got bits of pork hanging up with flies landing on it. And, you know, it's, it's, to a Western, it can be slightly off-putting. Um, but you know, people are still eating bats, and you know, in some remote provinces of, of China, they're eating dogs and so on. And I think that, funny enough, that that's the change we're going to see now. I, I mean, I'm only guessing. I've got no evidence to say this, but I think the the Politburo are going to crack down on all these very old-fashioned habits, which really come from starvation. You know, people forget that, uh, I mean, I'm sure you chaps know this, between 1949 and 1951, the great leap forward, several million people died of, of starvation. And so in China, there's this culture that, you know... Don't waste proteins. Exactly, exactly, exactly right. And, you know, some Westerners who are probably less into Asia, are quite rude. And I, I get very offended, but, you know, um, China has had such a, I mean, people don't realise, you know, such a dreadful history, you know, the 19th century with the, the colonialists of which we were, you know, big part. Um, and then the chaos of the 20th century, you know, the, the Japanese behaviour, and I say this as a Nipponophile, <laughs> you know, but just barbaric stuff in China. And then, you know, their own chap, Mao, um, who treated his people in the most barbaric fashion. So uh, I, I feel deep sympathy, um, but I can't help feeling, coming back to the point, that um, the Chinese have a reason to be this worried. Um, and I don't know what it is, but it's pretty clear they've been on the back foot for a long time. And one thing I think people never understand about Asia, it's all about face. Everything is faces, everything. And I think they tried to sort of hide it in November. I heard a rumor, but from someone who is well-placed, that um, the Chinese authorities contacted, I don't know if it was Porton Down or somewhere like that, but they, they have made contact with the UK about this virus. So what concerns me is I think there's something nasty lurking and, and I don't know what it is. And, but I, I remember, you know, I was at Oxford during the uh, Chernobyl thing. And um, I remember as well, you know, having no idea as to whether the radioactivity could blow over and affect us or, you know, we didn't really know. Taking the virus out of the equation, which I know is very difficult to do, but let's say we could, is China somewhere you'd be thinking of investing or 
Nope. <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think our, we've all had different iterations, uh, but I, I value my liquidity. Um, and I mean, it's very interesting because, you know, a lot of people I speak to, they, they think, oh, well, you know, you, you buy something and then you hold the position for six months. I, I think turnover is a dirty word. <clears throat> and I think people are being a bit irrational because when I started in this game, Japanese commissions were one and a half percent. Can you believe that? Yeah, yeah. One and a half percent. And now, you know, on an institutional portfolio, it's basis points. You know, you can do a program trade for three, four basis points, possibly even less now. Um, so actually, turnover is is a lot more favorable now. And I have seen so many people come a cropper because of liquidity. So that first unit trust I referred to earlier, which I inherited, I mean, I was far too young, but my boss thankfully had belief in me. And it had come down from a billion dollars to 20 million. So you know, there's really nothing to lose. But one of the reasons it had, well, it had poor performance, but also um, it had illiquids in them. And so one of the first things I had to do was to go out, you know, age 22, knowing nothing about nothing, find a buyer of these illiquids. So he'd got greedy, the manager before, and he thought, I'm going to boost my performance by having these illiquids. And, you know, ends in tears, and then you've got a write-off, and then, you know, you've got suspend and gate and all this sort of nonsense. And, you know, forward 30 years, Woodford, <laughs> same problem. I'm going to impose one of my cheesy quotes, which I've shared a lot already, which is um, someone told me in 2008, uh, tail end of 2008 after Lehman, if you're, a, if you're a distressed seller of an illiquid asset, it's worse than being trapped in a crowded cinema that's on fire. It's like being trapped in a crowded cinema that's on fire, and the only way you can get out is by persuading someone on the outside to swap places with you. <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderfully vivid metaphor. I wasn't quite sure where you were going with that one, but the punchline was a lot better than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, and, and that goes down to, again, another one of my theories. Um, you know, people, I mean, this is what I find so annoying about our business. You know, you're either a hero or you're an asshole. Um, and, and, and people think that they can categorize people onto that. And, you know, I've seen, say, Chris Benodi go through his, his great times and his more difficult times. And he's been treated as both. And the answer is, you know, he's the most extraordinary investor who sometimes gets it wrong. And, you know, it was the same with Neil Woodford. I'm sure he's a very competent, clever guy. But he was so fated as this genius. Um, mm. and, and suddenly they become superhuman. And I saw that particularly with the Japanese. I mean, they're a bit more like, like the typical Geneva investor. You know, they, they, they're performance chasers and they, they like to, um, you know, glorify people. So, you know, in 2010, Poisson, ah, Poisson. Paulson, you know, Paulson, who had been an M&A specialist, sort of landed on this issue of the, the, the credit crunch, um, mortgage market in America, um, and then who was given $3 billion on the basis that he was the superstar who, who knew how to do everything. And then suddenly he's having to operate in a slightly different universe. I'm sure he's very bright. I'm sure he's, he's, he's great at what he does. But, um, you know, liquidity, I think, is that trap. And people fall for it again and again. So to answer your question, I love hyper liquid futures markets. And uh, my partner in crime, Stephen, um, you know, he he will trade gold 10 times a day because it tends to fluctuate by $10. And sometimes he gets it wrong. But, you know, his, his hit ratio is a bit over 70%. Um, I remember when he first rang me, you know, we'd started 
sort of trading together in, um, well, as I said, March, March 08. And he would ring me up and he'd say, oh, Alex, the Hang Seng is down 400 points. It's going to recover at least 100 into the close. And, you know, I rather pompously, I'm sure, sort of said, you know, why are you bothering me with this? You know, I, I'm, <clears throat> you know, bearings with growth at the right price, you know, on a five-year view. Until I realised that, of course, you know, he, he understood flow. And, um, you know, people had books that they needed to close for the day. And so seven times out of eight, he made that 100 points, you know, with very, very low risk. So um, our futures contracts, the commodities, you know, they're specifically chosen because they're amongst the most liquid. Because, you know, when you see people can be squeezed, one of my other friends had a, had a short in the Aussie and, um, you know, it was, it was a proxy for China. And uh, someone quite famous in America who'd been a client on and off got wind of it. And basically squeezed him out. And I thought, gosh, how can you do that, the Aussie dollar? But of course, you know, if you're almost $20 billion and you say you've got a 5% position, it, it's possible. So, yeah, we, we like to be able to get in and out. And, and we put stop losses on absolutely everything, only on the basis that, I mean, it's probably for me, it's not for everyone, but um, we like to be on the front foot. And the great thing about a stop loss is when you get taken onto the back foot, you're then taken out and then it, take, what, take, it takes the emotion away as well doesn't it completely completely yeah what's, so your, t- what's your typical time frame for a trade then um well it can be you know half an hour uh, yes, particularly if it goes Stephen. wrong <laughs> uh well, well well no no actually not um sometimes you know it, it, it can go right very very quickly it, you oh, know, cool. usually- so so you're short term then because i from what you were saying at the top of the show about having a kind of macro focus i, I was imagining that you were more long-term sort of you know, three months to maybe a year, maybe longer. Well, actually, you make a very good point. Um, I find calling myself discretionary macro problematic in a way because of that. And um, I've seen a, a litany of people who I think are extraordinarily good, Horseman being one of them. You know, he was one of the great macro funds of, of, of last decade. And, um, you know, from 2010, 11 onwards, it became very, very difficult to make these big bets that you put in size and you stick to them. We really don't do that. We, we like to use the, the sort of medium to long-term vision of where we want to go. I mean, like, for example, gold, right? I think my position in gold's been there for about three or four months now. Um, but that's not necessarily typical. We've also got some much shorter-term things. And I think, you know, I'll probably change in 10 years. I don't know. But where I am now after three decades is I've begun to appreciate things that I would have so poo-pooed. I mean, I remember one of my friends from university saying, do not read charts. And I looked at him as if he was insane. You know, now I look at charts all the time. They're, they're, I, I love them. I mean, they're so interesting. Um, yeah, a man but, after my own heart. Yeah. <laughs> I've been, well, teaching, I've been, yes, yes. been using well, charts since the, since the 90s. And, you know, I've had rooms full of economists saying, this guy is absolutely crazy. And, um, you know, how can how can anything not be you know, decided by fundamentals or Bill Clinton, as some people have said, you know, he controls the market if the president says this. And and then by the end of it, once once they see what it can do for them, they they change their tune completely. And actually you'll almost go the other way, you know, become sort of completely rejecting the fundamentals and just looking at technicals. So it's very nice for you to say that. It's very nice to hear it again. Well, um, I was so thrilled when, when Tim... 
told me your background because I have huge respect. Um, I trained, I mean, look, I'm not a chartist per se. I'm, I'm, I'm like an amateur chartist in what I do, but I trained under a guy called Brian Marber. Oh, yes, Brian Marber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. One of the great gurus um, who was just marvellous and gave me a love. Uh, funny enough, it was Crispin who introduced me to, to, to Brian. Um, uh-huh. and, and so, so he uses charts too. That's it. That's very interesting. Oh, Chris, Crispin. Um, you know, having been so fundamental return on capital. Uh, I mean, he's just so intuitively bright. So he, I think it was mid-90s, he, he picked up on charts. Now, my rationalization, I don't know if you'll like this, but, you know, when people sort of say, well, you know, how do charts work? Or why would charts be useful? And I think I've worked it out, but certainly in terms of my experience. So I mentioned my early years in Tokyo. Um, midway through my five-year stint, there was a massive change. We were being pushed around by Frank Russell, who was the supreme consultant. And it was all about process, process, process. And then suddenly, bearings having been superstars, you know, like um, Crispin Odie, Richard Henrik Trench, various other great managers, it was all about process. So I'm pretty sure that our big bosses were going around the big clients saying, oh, you know, they could all leave. I replace them tomorrow. We have a process. So what happened in Japan was it was no longer me and then, you know, Udasan, who sat opposite me and whatever, choosing our own stocks for our own portfolios and cooperating. Suddenly became a committee and there were eight of us around a table and we were not allowed to do anything without all eight agreeing. And of course, what happens is the lowest common denominator makes the decision. So there was this other fellow who shall remain nameless who kept on saying things. It drove us nuts. Why didn't we wait until the results of the company come out? And then we can make a decision. So we went from being first quartile fairly consistently to being third and fourth. Um, and I think the way that I now put it is that charts or, or, or investing is about conjecture. By the time you have the facts, it's already happened. It's gone. And what a chart can do is it can alert you, you know, that something is potentially happening because at the margin, people are you know, beginning to see things. So, you know, for example, I have, uh, a, 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 you know, someone who I know very well, who is a, a fantastic cocoa and coffee trader. And um, I was a bit intimidated because, you know, he knows, he knows a huge amount and he's had people in Cote d'Ivoire and in Ghana looking at live prices. Um, and we had a discussion about this. And it was interesting that I think he'd felt frustration in recent years, that all his intelligence and whatever was not delivering in the same way. And it's because you know, someone like me saying, I'm never going to know what he knows, but even he struggles. So you've got to look at the charts. You've got to look at the, you know, the pickup in volume and where you get that marginal trade. And you see the same patterns again and again and again. And what I find so fascinating, Tim, you were talking about this earlier, um, when you look at, you know, that question of what's different and then what can you see from historical parallels. When you read Jesse Livermore and how he looked at price action, there's one feature which is just extraordinary. When you have a ceiling and the stock or the security just keeps banging on against the you know the ceiling and then finally breaks through, you're then at a dangerous point because it could be doing, you know, sort of head fake. But then if it goes through by about five, six percent and then comes back down to what was the old ceiling and then bounces off that, that's then the new floor. And you're probably at your safest point then. And, you know, charts can tell you all of that. And then, of course, you start to think, OK, well, what could be happening? What are the data points that haven't come out yet 
And then, of course, you start to see a little bit of evidence. Um, and, and that's the bit of investing that I find just the most enjoyable. Yeah, I, th I think one of the, you put it very well, actually. I think also thinking that the market is not reacting to what's happening today, it's reacting to what it thinks is going to happen in six to nine months in the future. And that's why the headlines will always be out of sync, because it doesn't matter what you're reading about now. The market's already way ahead in the future. So that also means that you might see... You mentioned the repeat of patterns, so that's obviously something you see very often. Something's happened, you know, 50 times before, and then you see it the 51st time. Well, what are you going to expect? Well, what's happened before? Now, does it mean does it mean it will happen 100% of the time? No, that's, that's what risk against reward is all about. So no one's saying just because you're using charts, you have to be right all the time, which is kind of what other people expect. They also expect you to know exactly what's going to happen all the time. And that's also, that's also not correct. You're looking at you're looking at setups and opportunities that have got a high probability, like your, your, your colleague who's working with you says, right, the market's down 400 points. Um, if, if we, if it, if it has a bounce of about, you know, 25 points really fast, you know, does a really big turnaround, that's like, that's called a mini spike, then we've got a good risk reward trade to say that it's going to go back up by maybe 75 to 100 points. So it's good risk reward. That's all technicals is. It's all just looking at how the market is reacting, how quickly it's reacting, how fast it's trending, and and also changes in trends. So we, we had... Um, we had a uh, a gentleman talking about gold on the podcast, and we were talking about finding the top in both Bitcoin and gold. Uh, so Brian Dennehy was we were discussing this, and and I was explaining from a technical point of view, it's not just how how market goes up; it's when it stops going up and starts going sideways. So the big top in gold for me was happening when everybody was uber bullish yet the price action was no longer rising. So when you get a disparity like that, where everybody's saying that the Fed are going to print money and therefore the gold's going to go to the moon, then and it doesn't go up and other commodities go down, that's your warning sign. Now, quite why that might happen, I don't know. But those, that's, that's where charts come into their own, where you're seeing a massive disparity in what the market thinks and actually what the price action is telling you. So a similar example, I mean, things have changed since then. Obviously, gold looks like it's going up now, so the trend has changed. Um, and you've got some big trends in, in the other commodities, like palladium, that indicate there could be much more to come from these commodities. But that that's the thing about charts. You can... You can also use it for timing, like you say. So if um, if you're particularly bearish on the Aussie dollar but the chart is screaming up in a straight line, well, why would you stand in front of that? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Just just wait. Wait for it to consolidate and start to weaken, at least on the chart, and then then jump in. But that that desire to be a hero, to catch the top, is what catches out most traders. And the basics of technicals tries to prevent that. It just says, look, wait, wait for the market to show a bit of weakness before you short it, and wait for some strength before you buy it. Don't just jump in on what you think the news is telling you because you're very likely going to be timing it wrong. The the, the other thing about charts, I, I don't know if you pay attention not just to the sort of movement, but also the bands. Um, I found that more recently we focused a lot on that. So my favorite trade, I absolutely love telling people about, is about two or three weeks before the 
um, EU referendum in, in June 2016. Um, so, you know, all my friends knew me as a Brexiteer. So they said, oh, you, you will, I suppose, you know, you were short sterling. Um, and actually, fun enough, I was quite nervous. I didn't think that, that Leave would, would, would win. And Stephen in, in Hong Kong was sort of nagging me, saying, look, we need to buy sterling. You know, typical, the, the guy who, who's kind of from an ex-British colony being bullish and me, the Brit, being bearish on, on sterling. And we'd had this big debate. And he said, look, it's fallen from like, you know, 211 to, to 140, uh, 145, sorry. And I just said, look, it's going to hit 140. And we had a big discussion. And he said, well, why? And I said, because 140 so often is the ceiling, you know, when you've been in a lower phase, or it's the rebound level. And I've been, I've had that level in my mind for, for years and years and years. So whilst we're discussing it, suddenly it goes to 140. And that was because there was a question time special um, with three remainers and three levers. And I mean, everyone remembers it because it's the one when Amber Rudd said, well, you wouldn't want to share a taxi home with Boris. Um, and, you know, the next day, the market suddenly thought, gosh, this, this might actually possibly happen. So it goes to 140. So Stephen's badgering me, look, we're here, let's buy. So we bought, we, and we bought quite aggressively because we had another at least 10 days. And uh, we knew that on Monday morning, Cameron, Carney, Osborne would all be with a metaphorical AK-47, you know, shooting up everything for Remain. Um, I, people don't even realize this, um, but I lived through it. Um, I just, my, 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 uh, my ghoulies shriveled at about 147. You know, I'd made seven cents in three days. It got to 150. It moved by 10 cents. Now, that wasn't because suddenly everything had changed or whatever. It's just that we'd bounced off that 140 level. So... <laughs> You know, it, 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 those. I think those levels can be so, so powerful. And so I outrage people because I think we're going to see absolute fireworks. It's going to start tomorrow morning as well uh, in these trade talks because, you know, level playing field. No, we're not. You know, we're an independent sovereign nation. And I keep on telling everyone we're going to 105. And my colleague tells me I'm absolutely mad. And he says, So that, that's, I, ster that's sterling dollar, by the way. Sterling dollar. Sterling dollar. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, no, yeah, not, not against the euro. Um, and, and he says, you know, why 105? I say January 1985 low, which I remember very, very well. I just moved to London. That is a call. That is a call to bait. I mean, well, let's see, let's see. But yeah, you can you can so easily see. You know, Boris, I think is going to walk away. Um, and funny enough, <laughs> I don't know. I'm so cynical now, but you know, I can see even the Huawei decision, which I had been talked about a lot this morning. I think that was all about asserting our independence from the EU and the US. And I think eventually, you know, to please the US, we'll probably just end up binning, binning that. And, and you can see all the other things. So the Irish border, you know, well, apparently the noises are now, there's going to be absolutely no border down the Irish Sea. There's going to be no paperwork, nothing. There's this dichotomy, you know, of, of what was agreed. And I think the government is going to, in a way, it's a sort of Trumpian thing to do, you know, to, just to sort of chuck a grenade at the table and see what happens. Um, and, and in those circumstances, if that is happening, if the newspaper headlines are, you know, we're going to get a fishing war, you know, there's going to be no deal, blah, blah, blah. I think people start to sell the pound again. And by the way, it's going to make it the most attractive currency in the world. It's just where you buy it. So you, you, would you be waiting for 105 before you, you step in to buy it? Well, look, if, if, I've got, if I've got a level of, say, I don't know, 130, 132, right, and I think it's going to take in, I mean, you'll know this much, much better than me, so I'm really, you know, talking bollocks here, but if you're going to be asking me, 
you know, uh, given that I just don't see it going through 140 anytime soon. It's going to take you know, huge amount of market energy to get through that. So 130, 132, which is closer, 140 or 105? I mean, that's how I look at it. So mm. to me, I, I have gone long, right? It's bounced off 130. If it goes to 129.5, 130, I buy for two cents. But my medium and longer term pictures, I was describing before, we always have that scenario, is I think the short is going to be much more interesting. But I'll only short if it's below 129. I will not short it, you know, before in big size. It'll just be a trading short from, say, 132 down to 130. And, and are you saying um, the, so are you saying the euro going down a lot as well? So this is primarily a dollar by dollar trade then? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I really like the dollar. And the one thing my, uh, at Barings, I had a, a colleague called John Birdwood, who is the guy I trust the most on currencies. And what he's always said is that they always, always, always overshoot, which I think, you know, is clearly the case. Um, so I think the dollar will overshoot probably much more than than anybody thinks. But, you know, you're you're alluding to the, you know, to sterling euro. And whilst yes. we've been talking, I've got the chart up. Now, I remember I got my levels slightly wrong. I said to a number of people, um, you know, 114 is the peak of sterling. I mean, this is a long time ago. It won't go through 114. And it's sort of actually, you know, as charts do, I mean, you all know this much better than me, but charts can fool around. You know, if you're too religious about the precise level, you'll get it wrong. Um, and in the end, 116 was the level. And we flirted with that um, last year, you know, in sort of March to May. Uh, and then we started pushing against it again in mid-October. And then, you know, from November onwards, we were into higher territory. So 116 was breached. And then, you know, several times we've come back. So December, we came back to 116 and a half. And then January again, mid-January, 116 and a half. And we're now at 120. So the way we would play it now is we'd say we're trading between 116 and 120. And then above 120, if it breaches that 121, then we buy aggressive. Yeah, 120 is massive. It's a huge level. It's, yeah. it's almost yeah. begging to break it. So that's why I was quite interested in your long-term view because it seems to me like 120 is going to, you know, be properly breached. Um, but if if that means sterling dollars down, at, you know, heading down towards 105, that means dollars, dollar euro has got to be a massive trade. I think it's a massive trade. Um, yeah. I'll just get the euro chart up because I, I think I, I confess that I got it slightly wrong. Because, you know, I, I like to try and be open-minded, you know. Yes. Well, that's I, the thing. Things change. Disaster, I mean, but, yeah. yeah. But the thing, the, the, you see, the reason I'm short the euro is that 109 was the was the floor and it broke it. So we had, in the autumn of, of last year, it went to 109, then bounced. And then, you know, the range was 109 to 112. And, and the momentum is huge now. And the DMI, um, you know, the, what, what made me buy it was the, the ADX line crossed into the, you know, the red zone of the DMI. Uh, and that's just telling you the trend is very, very strong. So I think it's only just started. Yeah. I, I like the idea of euro dollar hitting 0.81 and collapsing through there. But that's, uh, you know, that's just my my long-term sort of bearish on the euro, you know, call coming out. But um, yeah, but it's 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 looking interesting. I tell you what surprised me, and of course I'm very coloured by my French experience, but it's the shrill tone. Yeah. You know, uh, Fonda Lyon, uh, Michel Barnier, uh, it's all been, you know, Britain is going to suffer, whatever. You know, if they really believe that, I mean, would they really care? 
you know, it, it, yeah. it's almost like that. That's they, a good they, point. Yeah. Um, but again, it's an area where I'm a little bit weak on. But intuitively, I was thinking, I mean, I was shocked when Theresa May was not including services in the discussions because I had read with, you know, this sort of obsessive zeal. Journalists were all saying British financial institutions are going to lose their passporting. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, is this going to be a disaster? And, you know, 80% of our um, of our economy is services and things are going to be dreadful. Uh, and then you sort of look a little bit more deeply. And I believe it's only 15% of um, city turnover is linked to the EU. 85% is UK and rest of the world. Um, and then I remember when, when they, do you remember, they were talking about how uh, the clearing uh, would be they they might legislate to make clearing uh, mandatory in the eurozone uh, in in the EU, so that you know people were buying I don't know French government bonds they would have to clear on the continent not in London. And I remember thinking what a, what a moronically preposterous thing to say. You know if, if the if the BOJ can you imagine the BOJ saying if you want to buy yen bonds you they have to be cleared in Tokyo. I mean you know they would lose part of their, their market overnight. But then the thing that I thought, and I only heard this briefly and I haven't researched it, but my understanding was that trading costs have declined so much because of the volumes in London that if the EU forced their institutions, their pension funds, insurance companies, to trade on the continent, their trading costs would increase dramatically. And then I heard of a number of these institutions who went to ESMA. I'm not quite sure why ESMA, but, and they were saying, look, if you go through with this, we're going to have to create subsidiaries in the UK in order to do our trading. Um, because, you know, if you're a, a pension fund or sovereign fund or whatever, um, you want to keep your, your trades to a minimum. So there was that pattern beginning to sort of develop, which it might be, as you say, the opposite of what we expect. And then the thing that absolutely blew my mind, but again, I don't know all the details, was Nissan. You know, we were all saying, oh, just-in-time is finished. Well, surprisingly, just-in-time was invented in Japan, and they get their parts in from Malaysia and China and so on, and they've got certification of, you know, conformity and, you know, export license, import license, blah, but they're still operating just-in-time on that basis. But then when I heard that, you know, Nissan's plan B was to say, well, let's shut down Spain, let's shut down France, and let's try and take 20% of the UK market, <laughs> you know, it's... It's very interesting. And, you know, it won't be every industry that has that. But I don't think the picture's, the picture's quite as bleak as people would have it. Just just one final question, if I may, about um, we, we've heard about what you don't like um, in terms of places to invest. Where do you like? And is, does the UK stock market interest you? I gave up on stocks a long time ago. I found, so in 2006, I, I, I'd set up a, a couple of Japanese hedge funds. Uh, my first one in 1998, my second one in 2003. The second one was market neutral using principal components. And then in 06, having had 16 years of, of Japan, I decided to give up on Japan. I was just so tired of Japanese corporate leaders sucking in breath, as, as the Japanese do so well, and saying a little bit difficult, which means absolutely no way in hell. Um, and 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 I was finding the micro less and less enjoyable, so I decided in '06 to hand the capital back to my to my investors and stop doing long short Japan. And from that moment on, yes, I have a sip 
and I invest in things. But if I'm honest, I probably spend more time looking at the momentum breakup levels and whatever for my SIP than I do taking the balance sheets apart as I, I would have used to do. So, um, you know, I, I restrict myself to those four buckets, you know, the, the key equity indices, the 10-year sovereign bond indices, um, six out of the seven DXY Forex contracts, and then, you know, six select commodities. Now, if you ask which of those I enjoy the most, I mean, what's so fascinating about that basket of four categories is they're so incredibly different. Because um, if you think of commodities, a lot of it is about the, the capacity, the supply and all that. You know, if you get a freeze, it has a profound impact on natural gas, but on coffee as well. Um, Forex is a zero sum game because, you know, there's always someone on the other side of the trade and you just don't get markets going up forever and ever and ever. Um, bonds I know less about, but I find them fascinating because it's, it's really it's raw numbers in a way that no other asset class is. Um, and then equities, I can't help feeling that, you know, we're going to be short quite a lot of these indices for many years to come. And and where we've been, I think, lucky more than good judgment. But, you know, whenever I've got too bearish on, on indices, and I've tended to short the DAX and the CAC. But, you know, for example, in December, I suddenly thought at the beginning of December, Christ, I'm really exposed here if I'm wrong, and I've been wrong for a while. So we went short, we went long the S&P as a hedge. And of course, the outperformance of the S&P was so much greater than the, yeah. the other two. And it, it's in clear blue territory, isn't it? I mean, you'll tell me. It's, it's, yes. you know, the, the CAC and the DAX are away from their highs, but the S&P's gone straight through. So. It's just been, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just um, out there on its own. So... I find that I, I mean, you'll know what it's like, both of you, Tim, Tim too. What's most enjoyable is is having taken a gutsy bet and then getting right. That's what's the best thing about our industry, isn't it? it you just feel extraordinary. And all those pent up frustrations, those failures, those um, questioning of your own abilities and whatever, it's all put right when you get those successes and you live for those. And obviously, you know, the key point in this industry, I think, is to, keep your own emotions in check, both positive and, and negative. Yes, indeed. You know, one of the trades I've really enjoyed as well is the the Nikkei, which we have been short. I'm just trying to get the chart up um, just to give you some sense. So there we've got a very, very strong ceiling at 24,000. So we've had this range between 23,000 and 24,000, which has been going on for two months. And that's quite satisfying. And then I think my favorite trade of all was the one I told you before, um, going long sterling in the lead up to the referendum. But just to be clear, because my friend Crispin was very clever, did some polling up north, and he knew what was going to happen. I didn't. Um, I wouldn't personally take a position over the referendum, because to me, it's, I call it a one minute to midnight, one minute past midnight bet. You know, you just don't know. Yes, yeah, so um, I was going to say exactly that. Actually, it's just it's it's almost like putting all your chips on red at casino or whatever. You a just little don't bit, know. yeah. Well, yeah. look, I I certainly don't think Crispin did that because you know he he did some private polling. I mean that was bloody mm. good market intelligence. But I don't have the same resources quite. Uh, yes. So, yeah. Do you get tempted by the volatility in the cryptocurrencies? Because you could they swing around, don't they? Very interesting. No. Uh, I mean, I quite like vol, but not per se. I, I like vol when I feel I have some sort of edge. So it's so very interesting because you mentioned crypto earlier. The the office out of which I operate, um, they trade 
wine, basically claret. Um, and so really, you know, yeah. How do they do? Know. How do they do that? Was there an exchange or something? There's an exchange. Yeah, it's called Livex. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow! Yeah. Interesting. Well, it, it, it's got a very nice <laughs> secular trend to it, which is that you know um, you don't have uh, an increasing supply of you know the best the best wines, and meanwhile all the snotty. Uh, you know, nouveau, riche, Chinese, Indians, whatever, who probably don't know much about wine, but you know, it, it's it's cool to buy it. Well, they drink it. They drink. They drink it with Coke, don't they? <laughs> I'm not sure that much. <laughs> now, now, Tim. <laughs> but but what I will say is that um, you know, it just has meant that this this asset class has a momentum that's so different to everything else. Can you guess when wine peaked in recent years? No. Uh, no. No. 2013. And you're thinking, hang on a minute. Europe was sorting itself out. We'd recovered from 08. Things were picking up. Why 2013? Xi Jinping comes to power, goes to all the provincial guys and says, no more bribery, no more sending each other expensive gifts. Suddenly the demand for you know, top claret. Love oh, it. Very interesting. Okay. But, but the reason I was telling you this is that there was a young fellow in the office, um, and you, you know, in a small office, you get to know people very well. Who was charming and, and bright, but very techy, very sort of, you know, oh, you're an old fart, you're 53. I mean, he said it charmingly, but you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And I hope then you fired him. <laughs> well, he's not mine to fire, but <laughs> no, no, no. I, I love youthful exuberance. You just have to yes, sort of course. smile and then find a, a roundabout way of getting them to realize why maybe you know they're not quite as accurate as they think they are. But he, over one Friday afternoon, um, you know, he, he he called us in and he'd got a little Krugerrand and a five pound note and then he cut out a Bitcoin, you know, from a printout. And he said, so what does everyone think? You know, what which, which one of these is 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 the, the, the future kind of thing? And I was very much in the minority. I'm sure I, I'd love to put on a bet that you two will say the same as me. My preference was Gold, number one, mm -hmm. the Fiverr, number two, and the Bitcoin, third. And, of course, he was, you know, completely the other way around, very dismissive of gold. And, you know, we all had to write it on a piece of paper, and then, you know, afterwards we had to sort of explain why. And, you know, of course, his explanation for the Bitcoin was, you know, it's the future, and, you know, people like technology and all this sort of nonsense. And I turned around and I said, look, for me, it's very, very simple. Um, you know, the supply of gold increases about 1% a year. Uh, the entire... I mean, we all know this. The entire supply of gold could fit an Olympic swimming pool. And the only reason that could change is if we get free energy, because then apparently we can extract it out of the sea. But it's quite energy intensive and it doesn't look like energy is going to be free anytime soon. Um, the Bank of England, first of all, you know what they're doing. I mean, you follow the DMO, you know exactly what's happening. But anyway, the forex markets are so smart. You know, if, if the Bank of England is prostituting the currency, going to come straight through. So you, you, you can see it. Bitcoin, I haven't got a clue. And he said, oh, but look, it's an algorithm, blah, blah, blah. I don't know the guy who constructed it. Who knows? He could be a fraudster. He could be a Bernie Madoff. You know, we don't we don't know. So that that's my take on on Bitcoin. I mean, to me, it's an utter nonsense. It's, it's interesting how people have got different views of it. Um, it's, I think it's been created with the best intentions, but whether you would choose it over something in the real world. I think like anything, it's got its place. I mean, and its trading place is that there's plenty of volatility there. Now, whether it becomes the future of money, as some people think, or it goes to zero, in many ways, I don't really care either way. All What I care about is 
it, the volatility and whether that represents an opportunity. Um, so I, do I you trade it? I, I, yeah, I do, just just uh, in bits. But uh, you know, but I, I don't get so het up about whether whether it's it's going to be the future of money. And I just think, well, it's it trades in very nice trends, and so therefore it's worth looking at. But in some ways, there there is the an argument to say get a little bit on board because if it does take off, then you know take off beyond twenty thousand potentially then at least you've got some on board so it's a, it is a bit like a lottery ticket but you know that, that that that's kind of kind of my view on it and and i've i've done quite a lot of research into it and i think what what worries me about it the most is that you you have got you've got these the, the way you transact in it is not um some people would just say oh, you know I, I just don't know enough about it and it is easy to transact in it but i find it difficult and i actually know a lot about programming and you know i can program in different languages and and i'm not afraid of technology you say you got your app and you've got your wallet and if that wallet if you forget the password then that's it all your money's gone when you send money you can't reverse it so if somebody sends you something uh, or you accidentally send a big amount to the wrong place that's it you can't reverse it so there are various problems like that um that I guess could happen elsewhere. I mean, I suppose you could send a transfer accidentally to the wrong person, but at least through the banking system, you've got some hope of recovering it. Um, but you're not if you forget your password to your your online banking, you can always get it again. But if you forget your password to your Bitcoin and you've got all your money in it, that's it. You've lost it. Um, and so, you know, there there aren't there are inherent problems with it. But as as far as a currency goes it is secure it's definitely secure but there's nothing more secure than a gold bar in your pocket right right you know that's 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 that looks pretty good to me so if you were to give me a choice between one or the other i'd rather take the real thing um than than something that's you know out there in the ether but i i perfectly also accept the argument that that's all money is i mean money is just bits of paper that we accept as money and so You know, you you can't use you can't say that Bitcoin isn't money and normal money is because there's more inherent value in normal money because there just isn't. There's so I, I get I get that argument and I think it's I think it's right. But that doesn't if you look at why Bitcoin was created in the first place, it was to replicate gold. So it's kind of like gold technology, if you like. It's the, using using the ideas of gold but trying to create it using technology and. Whilst that's good in theory, it's, it can never be better than the real thing. And what, Tim, what, what, what's your attitude towards uh, towards Bitcoin? I mean, nothing really to add to what Paul's just said. So my my ranking of those three things would be gold, probably gold, Bitcoin, Fiverr. Yeah, oh, okay. that would be mine. That would be mine actually as well. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Well, you probably know more about the intricacies. And, you know, all my friends who who are much more technically minded, they just say, look, you don't get it. And then they rabbit on about blockchain. And I'm not sure I fully understood the the difference or the link between Bitcoin and blockchain. But when blockchain has been described to me, that to me is a magnificent development, technical development that can help in all sorts of things. I mean, it's going to make transactions much more stable, etc. Totally Um, agree. Totally agree. But I don't, I probably don't know enough about Bitcoin. And you see, my motto is, if I don't know, I stay away. I mean, there's just no point. I think a lot of us do that too much, you know, just, oh, well, this looks fun or, you know, this is new, this is trendy. And then they get involved. And I'll never forget buying, um, 
it was some form of, it wasn't a structured product, but it was some form of note to try and get something synthetic for one of my Japanese positions. And I bought it from an American broker who will remain nameless. And then what I thought had happened, happened. But in the fine print, of course, I realized there was some sort of exclusion or whatever. And then you realized, you know, the, the agency always wins. Um, and from then on, I vowed that I would never, ever trade options again because I just felt I was killed. Um, yeah, so they, they I like, say the, I like best way, the best way to make money out of options is to, to write them rather than buy them. But <laughs> yeah, you, nicely put. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I think that's right. Brilliant. Well, look, um, I think we've probably taken enough of your time and, you know, you've been very generous with it. I think we'd probably... Probably go to media picks if if that's okay with everybody. Yep. What do you yep, think, yep. Tim? Yep. Would yep. That sure. be okay? Well, I, I, I thank you for your time. You, I've thoroughly enjoyed. It. Yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant. Been so, so, um, so if we do go to media picks, should we start with Tim? Tim, could you could start with yours if that be okay? Sure. The this is a film I saw last night called The Hummingbird Project with Jesse Eisenberg, Alexander Skarsgård, and Salma Hayek, and I don't know if it's based on a true story if it is based on a tr true story it's effectively based on the story of flash boys because it's all about co-location of servers and super fast access to markets and front running and all the rest of it but it's uh, ah. i just found it a gripping drama i'd never never heard of it no neither had i good so good call called the hummingbird project and I, th I think anyone would uh, anyone that enjoys this podcast would enjoy this film great call thank you tim um if i may with mine just to give alex a little bit, bit more time to, to think of something <laughs> My one's going to be, uh, I said Parasite, you know, the, the uh, yes, South Korean, Korean film. Yeah. Yes. And so, hmm, what's what's my take on it? I was slightly disappointed. How did you see? Did you go to the cinema? Yeah, I went to the cinema, yeah. yeah. And What's that, granddad? What's that, exactly? <laughs> it was quite a packed cinema, actually, funnily enough, which is unusual. Um, but it was, uh, look, it's a very clever story. And it's a great idea for a story. And I think what was what was really good about it was uh, the setup. So the setup is basically rich people against poor people. And you've got this really poor family in South Korea and they, only, they can only make money by folding pizza boxes and they don't do that right and they're not being paid. And it's like the head of the family, the dad is like, you know, a bit of a loser. And they the son manages to inveigle himself into a rich family and start teaching their daughter uh, English, which he hasn't got the qualifications to do, but they managed to do a great job of forging a, an Oxford degree. And it's sort of, it's a great setup. So it goes from there. Um, and I don't want to ruin anything for anybody, so I'm not going to say very much about it. But it goes from there to being funny, to being really good, to being very enjoyable, to then sort of spinning off into, well, it, it then dips. And I'm not really sure you're like, well, what, where's this going to go, right? We've got this big setup and where's it going to go? And then it sort of spins off in a direction that that just takes it somewhere else that I wasn't particularly happy with. So there's, a, there's an ending and people talk about the ending and and I, I just think it was an okay ending. It was something that somebody, that you had to just sort of write in to finish the film rather than me coming away going, wow, what an ending. So I think it's been overhyped. Um, I, but I still think it's a good film, but I think it's not like Chernobyl, which is like you, just such a great series. You've got to see it as soon as you can. This is like, I'd wait for it to come out on the on the normal sort of Netflix, <laughs> Amazon <laughs> channels. You know, it's been overhyped. And as soon as Commode said, this is, this is the perfect film, 
you know, my my sort of warning signs went up as like, what? <laughs> you know, there's no such thing. I mean, it yeah. is very good. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's very good. I do like it, but it's not as great as everybody's saying. Interesting. So uh, I think mine, mine is a bit predictable, perhaps. Um, I saw 1917 with my son oh, two weeks ago. So did I. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I loved it as a bonding experience because he's 14, just started boarding school and is loving history. I mean, and that's what I read at university. So it was just a, a really great thing. But I picked up all sorts of things about the First World War that I didn't know. Um even though, you know, I, I sort of supposedly studied it. Well, not at university, that bit I did at school. But um, I thought it was beautifully done. I yes. thought the two heroes of the story were very well cast. Yeah. Um, the Schofield boy, he does British stiff upper lip. He does the sort of restrained emotion that Brits do, which is probably a bit different to, to everybody else. He, I, I've, I thought he did that beautifully. Um the bits that I thought were interesting, I mean, the, the scene that I thought was just extraordinary, I don't know how they filmed, was when the plane comes and crashes at you. Yes, I mean, that, that, was, just, that was amazing. Amazing, amazing. And I do think that, um, you know, it's not exactly the the, the best, um, well, let's put it this way, I can't imagine that any of the judges in, in Hollywood who were German would have voted for it because it, it paints the Germans in a pretty poor light. But what's interesting is that, you know, our generation, um, well, I don't know exactly how old both you are, but I'm, I'm 53. My generation was very marked by A.J.P. Taylor and that, who's the famous historian, and, and that is a very simple concept, which is basically World War II, Hitler, evil. World War I, lots of big empires fighting, Germans no more to blame than us. Mm. And I remember being a bit shocked when, I think it was Michael Gove, who was talking about, German atrocities in the First World War. And, and I got quite defensive because I mean, I like Germany a lot and I've got a lot of German friends. And I think they're an extraordinary culture. Um, and and I, I was taken aback by that. And actually, I think the answer is, you know, nothing is ever black and white. And I don't think the British behave particularly well historically either. But um, there are a few things that happened in that First World War. Now, one or two of my friends have said that the pilot of the crash plane then attacking his rescuer is inaccurate. Well, we don't know that for sure. It's not. It's not based on. It's not based on fact. It's, it's not based it, on fact. No. It was, it was based. Upon, it was based upon the uh, Sam Mendes's either his father or his. His I think it was yeah. his grandfather's. Yeah. It's so yeah. It's not based on true events. No, exactly. But um, the bit that is historically accurate and and Mendes is very subtle uh, when the hero escapes um, down the river, and then you see all those corpses. Um, and it's done quite subtly. You don't really see the faces or whatever, but yeah. that is an illusion. There were a number of, of, of massacres of civilians, um, yeah. and and I thought that it was it was possibly a bit too much for me because you know we all want to remain friends and you know whatever. But the 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 other thing um, that I found so riveting was the trenches because I haven't actually visited them, but my son did. And, you know, you sort of have some idea what it's like, but it was so well filmed in it. I noticed, for example, this is one of my pet bears, um, I think as a result of having so many non-Brits living in London, um, when people walk along pavements, they walk with the traffic instead of against the traffic. So if you're in, in New York or in Paris, you'd be keeping to the right. So you end up always, um, you know, away from the traffic. Uh, and in Britain, you realise in, in that film, in the trenches, you see all the lads, they're all walking on the left. Um, because that would have been the safer way to be 
on the pavement, which, by the way, a Japanese friend of mine said, had the Westminster Bridge atrocity taken place in Tokyo, we might not have had four deaths. We might have had two because people would have seen the traffic come against them. So, so there was all that historical stuff. But then the other thing I thought was riveting was the British Trench. You know, it was sort of, you know, a bit messy, higgledy-piggledy, held up a bit there. And then, you know, there are a few bits of wood and whatever. And then when they get into the German Trench and it's this perfect sort of concrete blocks and whatever. And that's still the case today. And it goes back to, you know, I had my central bank theory about, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxons versus the Bundesbank, Bank of Japan. And it's true of manufacturing versus services. You know, I've always taken the view that those um, sort of consensus societies that are very ordered and regimented are really good at manufacturing, ergo Japan and Germany. Uh, and that the Anglo-Saxons, who are very good at services, creative arts, etc., probably don't make quite such a good vehicle. And then, you know, to quote my economics teacher, the poor French are stuck in the middle with a bit of both. But in some ways, it, it, it I think it gives them advantages. You know, their rail network, I think, is that product, having, you know, the engineering skills, but also the flair yes, combined. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. So actually, funnily enough, I saw Parasite and 1917 on the same day and I was really looking forward to seeing Parasite. And I just thought I'd, I'd like to see 1917 on the big screen because it's that sort of film. And I found that I liked 1917 much more than Parasite. And I yep. thought it was going to be the reverse. I think it's a great, great, great thing to see at the cinema. Fantastic film and very good call. So, you know, thank you for that. Um, we'll have to put some spoiler alerts before we put out your 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 comments on it, just in case people haven't seen it. Um, but uh, that that's um, no superb, and the states of the trenches and things like that. So it's amazing what different people see in 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 films. I'll have to go when I watch it again, which is the sort of film that you will want to watch. You again. will watch again, yes, yes, uh, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, my uh, son, funny enough, he 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 came back for half term yesterday, and he said, "Daddy." Um, I know you might not you might not want to see it, but can I take Mummy to see 1917 again? <laughs> cool. I want to see it again. Yeah, he's excellent. He's so gripped by it, and yeah. and you know, getting into the subject, which is lovely to see. Has he seen Dunkirk? Yeah, we saw that together. Funny enough, mm. um, and then oh, this will make you laugh. Uh, we saw it on Netflix last week, mm-hmm. <laughs> and my wife, who is Danish, um, she's that extraordinary combination of ardent Eurosceptic, but also Danish, um, left Denmark 30 years ago. And to Danes, she's very Anglo-Saxon. And of course, to me and most Brits, she seems very, very Scandinavian and, and very intuitive. And um, we were watching Dunkirk and, you know, my son Nicholas and I were taking it very seriously and, you know, patriotically and all that. And then she always spots the absurd. So she, you know, towards the end of the the film we couldn't take ourselves seriously because she just said how long has that guy been flying you know all the boats have spent two days coming over and this guy's still flying on no engine on no on no fuel um which is sort of true um and so having you know taken myself very seriously with this film i suddenly realized it wasn't perhaps quite as well made as i had well his his, his spitfire was sponsored by greta thunberg yes exactly um but but you know it's it's very interesting having a a a non-british spouse because um you know i always think that i'm hampered by being you know i'm a very patriotic brit i i love our country and i think i i love what it's become you know modern, modern britain but sometimes i don't see its flaws my wife's the first to point it out but then she'll notice things um, which which are really interesting, like 
one observation she made years ago, but I hadn't really thought about it, um, was she just said, you know, that there are sort of two camps, um, not so much politically, but just in terms of lifestyle. And I said, what do you mean two camps? And um, she then brought up the class system, which I hate talking about, because I think we've moved on from that. But she's basically saying, you know, you, your upper class, upper middle class, and the working class have this, you know, much more similar way of looking at the world. And then, you know, that sort of middle class, sort of educated and whatever, again, completely different. And when she first mentioned this, I thought she was bonkers. And as I say, to me, it was, you know, 1980s talk. But of course, it was coming from someone who wasn't British. Um, so I began to think about it. And then suddenly, we get the referendum and the whole debate. And I think in one tight expression, she's encapsulated it all. Because actually, Brexit to back that. And then I asked her a bit more. I said, you know, you remember when you said that? What did you mean? And she said, oh, well, you know, take attitudes towards um, smoking, drinking, eating unhealthily, uh, not minding too much about dirt, loving dogs, um, being a bit careful about foreigners, whatever. <laughs> and, and I suddenly realised she had encapsulated the Brexit divide in a way that I had never really seen at all. And I was in Parliament Square uh, uh, on, on the 31st of, of January. And you kind of, you felt that vibe, you know, people who go on city breaks to Barcelona and whatever, and, you know, who spent quite a bit of time in Italy or whatever, those sorts of types weren't really around. And then you saw, you know, people in shooting coats and caps, and then, you know, people who'd clearly come from the North or from Wales or, or whatever. Um, so I, I now take my wife's remarks much, much more seriously because she's got a very different angle, a fresh angle, usually. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, that's fantastic. Alex, if anyone wants to get in contact with you, are you or follow your comments? Are you on Twitter or email? I am on Twitter. Um, I don't know about whether I should be disclosing my email. Um, okay. Well, on here, whatever, but... whatever you're comfortable with. Well, I, to be honest, I, I, I've looked into compliance and I am allowed to appear on this podcast, but I, mm. I haven't gone into that level of detail. But yeah, I am on Twitter. And uh, yeah. for those, should we just take on... your Twitter? Let's just take your Twitter handle then, if, if that's. I think it's Alex Balfour. Alex Balfour. Okay, it was only only for you know if people wanted to drop. I love people getting in touch. I've met yeah. the most extraordinary people on Twitter. Um, I mean, it can sometimes get a bit heated and I tend to shy away from that. But I've also met, I've, I've been in Twitter talks with Kate Hoey, who is, I think, one of the most uh, brave, courageous, principled people, certainly on the la Labour benches I've ever come across. The only other person I'd love to meet one day is Gisela Stewart, who I think is, is, is amazing as well. At A.D. Balfour. At oh, A.D. Well Balfour. Fantastic. It's Thank so you. old, you know, I set up Twitter in something like 2009, 2009, nine, 2009, and then never used it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you're, you're active on there now. I'm quite active on, on it now. I mean, I've learned, I've learned the hard way. I used to find myself getting sucked in by, you know, quite angry uh, Remainers or whatever. And, and then, you know, and, and I'm, I'm very conscious that people have come from somewhere very different. You know, there's a French guy who got really upset with me. Um, I hadn't said much, but it was just my belief that upset him. And then, of course, I found out he'd done Erasmus. He'd been to the University of Leuven in Belgium. Um, his whole life had been funded, basically, by, by, by the EU. Why would someone like that ever get Brexit? I mean, of course, of course mm. they wouldn't. So 
you know, I, in, in my more mature years, I'm, I'm sort of trying to, you know, always to understand that someone has a different point of view and you're, you're never going to try and change them. There's no point. Um, just so long as they allow you to have your point of view. And I think where I've got a bit more upset with some of my friends who aren't British on the whole, uh, on the whole Brexit issue, it's just been because they don't, some of them, I mean, it's, it's a minority, they don't seem to ever be able to understand where we're coming from, which is obviously quite a different place. There's a line from um, book Inconvenient Facts, which is one of my favourites, which is on the topic of climate change, which is a whole other topic we can touch at a later date. But it has this wonderful expression in that that I hadn't heard before, audiator et altera pars, or let both sides be fairly heard. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and it's funny because it reminds me of my... Um, I was such a moron, you know, I was 19, my first week at Oxford, and we had the matriculation process where, for the first time, really, and probably last time, you put on your gown and you go to the Sheldonian Theatre and you get a little lecture from someone. We have to, you, have to, you have to wear it for finals as well. Uh, you're actually all right. I'd forgotten that. Um, uh, mine was probably moth-eaten by then. <laughs> uh, but we, we had a lecture from the vice-chancellor, and we were sniggering and sniggering away. But for some reason... I can't remember the main message, but I think probably because we were laughing so much, because he wanted to be, the word he kept using was tolerance, but of course he pronounced it as tolerance. Um, <laughs> but essentially what he was saying was that the, the sign of a great education was the ability to be tolerant towards others. And of yeah. course, as a moronic, complacent, pompous 19-year-old, I didn't get that. Um, and I'm now really remembering that quite quite assiduously and um travel you know, you does can... that for you as well doesn't it sorry what Great. does travel travel it's just you're able to see different cultures different ideas and different ways of doing things that you know aren't are just different maybe better in different ways and i think that helps i'm not sure i totally agree with one, that one i'll tell you why it does because you know i spent 10 years in france eight years in japan and you know, i've been all over the place and i speak languages and stuff uh, and I find it makes me much more Alf Garnet when I'm back here, because when I see people not respecting our way of life or our beliefs, um, I mean, I don't usually react to it, but I just think, you know, uh, star, 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 ER, as it were. <laughs> um, you know, I, I expect people who are here to kind of respect our way of life and our way of doing things and whatever. And of course, that's just totally unrealistic. It's ridiculous. So I, I know what you're saying travel but but i i've just found in a way i've found it a bit harder sometimes i know the grass is always greener i wish maybe i hadn't traveled so much <laughs> and i was just you know just an ordinary bloke getting on the tube um mm. who who probably didn't have such high expectations of how everyone else would be and and that was actually you know during the whole referendum debate um, and i talked to you know continental europeans mainly western funny enough i my issue was much more with with the western european ones um and and they just never managed to quite see. I remember a German guy saying to me, you know, we're exactly the same as you. You know, we have the same rights, whatever. And I said, well, no, you don't. That's just not true. You can't be conscripted. Your children can't be conscripted. And if Comrade Corbyn gets in and we, but you and I both moved to Australia, he can't tax you, but he can tax me. It's a very different setup. Yeah, indeed. Well, look, it's been absolutely fascinating to have you on the show. You know, we've covered some great topics here. And of course, we would love to have you back one day, if that's possible. Well, I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. And I've learned a lot. <laughs> and, I, and I'd love to hear, you know, I'd love to shut up a bit more and listen to you talking about charts, because well, um, <laughs> Sansa, you've done a lot of um, lot of work on it. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's 
been my life from the my entry into the markets. Like I learned about the markets through charts, so right at the beginning. So for me, it was like a natural thing. And then I then I went into the city, you know, met economists, and then thought, why aren't you looking at charts? And why do you get why do you get stuff wrong all the time? And yes. you know, when this was just sort of really obvious. And I'm not saying I get stuff right all the time, but you know, it's 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 sort of learning from when you get things wrong that I couldn't quite get my head around. So, you know, like the economists who predicted, or sorry, who didn't see the crisis coming and yet still use the same tools that failed them in the first place. I mean, at the very least, you, you'd sort of question what you're doing, but they don't seem to. And at least with charting, you, you're saying you just don't know what the future's going to be and therefore you're open to all suggestions to anything. Exactly. So that, that's the main point of it. And, and it's that sort of simple logic that seems to, you know, People don't see. I, I don't. But that's the great thing about markets. Like you say, you know, if everybody did it, then you wouldn't have the zero sum game. You wouldn't have the the people to make money off, as it were. But not not saying it from. That's why I do it. It's it's you you need to have opinions that are wrong in order to to make money. The the bit that you just said that I just got my, got me thinking because it's so true what you say that you know, you are closed by your prejudices, your experiences, and you're right. Charts really, I think, remind you every time that anything is possible. Yeah. You know, like, well, I've still got the nick up here, and, you know, it's bounced uh, on the ceiling of 24,000. And charts make you think, ah, well, what would make us break through that 24,000? I think if you didn't have that, you would just think, yeah, well, the nick is not going anywhere. Yeah. Like, you take the height of the Greek crisis, and then who would have bought who would have bought Greek stocks? Like as yeah. as that was sort of passing, you yes. know, the stock market was was roaring higher. Well, you, yes. you, you, on any metric, you wouldn't have bought it, <laughs> yes. you know. But then yes. it becomes a fantastic investment, and and that's why when you look back without the emotion now and you see the buying opportunity, that's what you're trying to do at the time. You're trying to take all that emotion out and just say, well, look, it's just someone's buying this, even though. Even though it's horrible, somebody out there is sticking loads of money into this market. Right. Now, right. they obviously know more than I do about something. Um, so there's something amiss here. Well, let's, let's follow the price. And yes. the price leads you to, yeah, actually, there, it was a great buying opportunity for that reason. So that, that's why. And if you, if, you, if you close your mind to it, then it just seems, you know, whatever, no one's saying you can't use fundament, fundamentals. Fundamentals are fine. You know, it's, there's some very successful fundamental traders um, who, who do great analysis and, and uh, outperform, et cetera, et cetera. It's just saying this can give you a tool that, that can also help you. So that, that's really all. Um, and when you simplify it like that, it's not this sort of reading tea leaves voodoo stuff that, that many people, people think it is. Um, I think the main the main issue that it has is that when you get it wrong, you know, if if you if you fundamentally analyze the market and you're wrong and you lose money, people accept that. They'll say, oh, you know, well, I invested with this person or this this in this company and it, you know, and it and it didn't work out and they accept it. But if it's a technical trade that they don't quite understand, they just think because it's technical, you have to make money and that's the end of it. And that's that's not how it works. And we know that that's, that's not how investing works, you know. But it's just that if people don't understand technicals, then they're less forgiving of the fact that they get it wrong. Whereas they're quite happy to sit on a, you know, a massive losing position in the banks, you know, because they think banks are something you always invest in and, yes. you know, they can, they can rationalize it. Whereas if they were... 
you know, if they in technicals, you always have a stop loss as well. So you'd never put yourself in that position. Right. So right. it's it could be a subject of a whole podcast. Yes. Maybe. No. How, how well put, though? Yes, you're right. I mean, that's exactly why we started adopting stop losses. Yeah. It's, it's take the emotion out of it. Well, yeah. look, as I say, absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Alex, for giving Thank so you. much of your time. And uh, we hope to have you on again. So look forward to it. Best of luck with the fund, and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks. Thank you, Alex. Enjoy your day. Bye. Bye bye. And Tim, what a fantastic guest. So, so cool that you, you got him on the show. Yeah, he's great, great value, isn't he? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, thank you. Thank you, Tim, as well. And thank you so much for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure. And we'll catch you next time. All the best. See you soon. Bye. Cheer up. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.